Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a lifter when I'm not injured. <laughs> right. Coach with uh, Strength Guild and Juice Lift for Hope and a bunch of other stuff. So, This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for Globe University, run my own business, and a bunch of other stuff. And right now I'm watching the ocean in South Padre, Texas. Hopefully, kiteboarding when there's wind. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah, you know, travel just doesn't even put a kink in your, uh, a hitch in your giddy-up, Mike. You... Yeah, yeah, we were just in San Diego, so. <laughs> yeah, you're all over the place. Um, let's hit some news. Uh, I've got one listener question, and then um, I'll throw out a topic that I really haven't mentioned to anybody yet, but you guys, are, you guys can roll with this. Um, let's start with the news here. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This first one came from my wife, Kelly, actually. Uh, she knows I am not a big fan of acetaminophen, right? I mean, I don't know if a lot of our listeners realize, but God, for decades I've been reading research where they use essentially Tylenol to poison animals, and then they see if different things can protect their kidneys or their liver from this poisonous onslaught. <laughs> Um, but here's a, yet another reason, I think, to avoid acetaminophen. Now, some people, of course, take it because it doesn't have some of the gastric irritating effects that ibuprofen or aspirin has. But the title of this is, Is a Popular Painkiller Hampering Our Ability to Notice Errors? This is from the University of Toronto. It says, according to a new U of T study, it could also uh, be impeding error detection in the brain. The research, authored by a team including postdoc Dan Randalls and researchers from the University of British Columbia, is the first neurological study to look at how acetaminophen could be inhibiting the brain response associated with making errors. It says recent research has begun to show exactly how acetaminophen inhibits pain. And if I can insert something here, I never really felt that acetaminophen was as effective as something like ibuprofen for pain reduction, but... Um, Research has found that people are less reactive to certain situations when they are under the effects of acetaminophen. Um, they took two groups of people, and they had them do, I'm not going to bore you with all the details, but uh, one of those go or no-go kinds of computer tests where essentially, you know, if one letter pops up on the screen, you hit uh, the space bar. If another one pops up, you don't hit the space bar, that kind of thing. And then they hooked them up to a EEG. They had electrodes on their skull and... Uh, they were looking at different signals in the EEG associated with making errors. Uh, long story short, uh, 1,000 milligrams of acetaminophen, which is the normal maximum dose, um, inhibits our conscious awareness of making these errors. So the people would make the errors and they wouldn't be aware of it. It says, uh, quote, it looks like acetaminophen makes it harder to recognize an error, which may have implications for cognitive control in daily life, says Randall's. Um, sometimes you need to interrupt your normal processes or they will lead to a mistake. 
Instead, you should be uh, you should be ready to react to an erratic driver as far as your nervous system goes. So this, of course, gets my Dr. Frankenstein brain reeling because I'm thinking, I wonder, like imagine someone not noticing an error in a lift, like Phil's trying to show somebody how to lift or you, Mike, and you're like, no, here, do it like this. And then they, they're doing something. You're like, no, do it like this here, you know, and they just, they're not noticing the error. So uh, I don't know. Uh, it's one more reason, one more nail in the coffin for me, at least with acetaminophen, because uh, it's one of those things where the pharmaceutical industry just drives so much of that. You know, it's number one prescribed analgesic and this and that. And it's like, you yeah, well, it's because you're, at least at times, it's looked like to me, you're practically giving this stuff away for free. And that's why, you know, it's getting used as much as it, as it is by doctors or whatnot. But. Yeah, and that's fascinating. We didn't know that research until just now. I mean, acetaminophen's been around for a long time, too. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it didn't have strong enough warnings for years. And then finally yeah. you started seeing some of those warnings on the bottles. Because, like I said, I'm reading this research back in – even as an undergrad, I'm like, this this shit's really toxic. Mm-hmm. And anyway, now here it's – I don't know. Like I said, I think of all the nuances. Like imagine trying to teach someone an Olympic lift especially, something that's very skill-oriented, and they're not noticing the errors. I mean it could actually over time blunt the learning process, I would think. I don't know scary yeah, the weird, yeah i mean for what i've heard talking to people in the medical profession and this and that was that if if acetaminophen tried to pass fda now it wouldn't yeah <laughs> i believe as that an over the as an over-the-counter drug yeah you know? yeah so. uh okay what else do we have these next two these are just little tidbits from food network believe it or not uh, this is some of the freshest news i've ever offered on this show 18 hours old this news oh there you go so wow. uh, this first one um uh, and I should give credit to the uh, science writer who wrote this, or the reporter, Amy Reiter, or Reiter, R-E-I-T-E-R. But both of these news clips caught my eye because I, I think they have caveats, and one of, them, one of them is one of my soapbox issues. But the first one says, healthy eaters and financial incentives. Why didn't anybody do this before? The insurance company John Hancock is now offering life insurance uh, financial incentives. And again, this is indirectly through USA Today, but lower premiums, grocery store discounts, and cash back deals for consuming healthy foods um, such as fruits and vegetables at the grocery store. So apparently this insurer, you know how they try to do like uh, like at, at the university where I work, we, we have certain incentives. We, like they'll give you 50 bucks on your paycheck if you put in X number of minutes of walking around the track a day or you go get your blood pressure checked or so, but this is food. Um, I think this is an interesting idea, but it begs the question to me, um, what about our listeners? Like, who defines healthy foods? Is it just fruits and vegetables? I mean, I can see an argument for that, honestly. But what about, like, eggs, whole eggs, red meat? You know, are these things going to be on the list? Would we get incentives for this kind of stuff? Or are some of these controversial foods you know, not going to get us our discounts kind of thing when it's hard to, it's hard to argue that a lot of the, those kind of whole natural type foods, um, they should really be on this list. Like I said, you know, uh, quality red meats and whole eggs and, um, you know, that kind of stuff and not just celery sticks. I don't know. <laughs> so and if you submit your receipt and there's like seven ribeyes on there, does your deductible go up? Then Right. Does, does it, it go up? That's an unhealthy food. <laughs> <laughs> like that study we were talking about in San Diego, you know, where they were 
they, they were hypothesizing that half of serving basically of red meat would raise your cardiac risk. I'm like, why would you even hypothesize that except for some kind of dogma? I don't know. Anyway, I'd love to get reimbursed for part of my grocery bill. That'd be awesome. Oh, it would be awesome. Wouldn't it? I mean, if this catches on, uh, and the kind of foods that I think our listenership actually eats are on the list, it'd be very cool. But I don't know. I have a little bit of a concern that there's a, a traditional, you know, less science savvy dietitian making some of these decisions like creating these lists. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe not. It could be a good, it could be a good thing for sure. I, Think of the grocery bills that most of our listeners have. I didn't want to, yeah. you know, mine is still big, but I can only imagine, you know, uh, some of our, our bigger lifters, you know, they could use a kickback. Uh, and then this last one, this is this is one of my soapbox issues. I know they're well-meaning, but it's called Eat and Run. It says, here's another great idea, at least according to the uh, reporter. <laughs> A British organization uh, dedicated to improving health and well-being, the Royal Society of Public Health, uh, is now calling for packaged foods, not only with the nutrition information on there, like the calories and the you know macros and whatnot, but um, they also want the food companies to list how many minutes they, a person needs to spend walking, running, or biking to burn the calories from that food oh, item. No. And, you know, my gripe with this is this brings us back to – you know, positioning exercise as anti-eating. That is not why we do it. I mean, so if, if you exercise specifically to burn calories, you're missing the freaking point. The point is you're building structures from a cell level, subcellular level, all the way up. You know, more capillaries, more mitochondria so you can burn fat or a different, you know, morphology of your heart and the heart function, um, pulmonary function, everything, hormones, you're redefining, you know, you're recreating yourself um, with exercise. It's the adaptations that we're after. I think lifters are especially uh, understanding of this because one of the adaptations is muscle mass, and you can see it, you know. Um, whereas a lot of people, if they're just exercising just to try to burn off that bagel, like I said, I think it relegates <laughs> exercise to anti-eating, you know, to, to a calorie drain, whereas all foods coming in are a calorie, you know, um, gain i don't know it's apparently there's a a letter in uh the british medical journal about this and i I suppose in fairness it says uh it could prompt people to be more mindful of the energy they consume but yeah but i think that leads to the like we've discussed before that if that's your mindset then you start looking at almost all food is bad oh my gosh, if I eat this, I got to do this X amount of exercise and do this. And I just think that just leads people in the entirely wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Now, having said that, yeah, it is, you know, interesting because, you know, like sometimes if you use one of those fitness apps or a a mytracker.gov or any of these kinds of uh, free uh, calculator type things, you got to be careful because food entry, on those things is where a lot of the mistakes get made. Like you write it, you t- type in one bagel and the software program looks at that like a bagel that's about the size of your palm, you know, and you're eating something the size of a tractor tire. And that's, that's <laughs> not the same thing. Uh, so maybe it's good from that perspective, but I couldn't agree more. It, it, it's like, Oh God, I ate that. Now I have to go do this. Almost like punish yeah. myself with, with calorie draining exercise. And to me, that's why I like resistance training so much. It's much more about building instead of wasting but 
And most of those people, in my experience, and I don't know what your guys' thought is, that they tend to then do the exercise that they hate the most. Yep. Because running is the most easy way to say, figure out how many calories you burn. Uh, well, I freaking hate running, but oh my God, I got to go burn this bagel off. Yeah. I'm not sure how many calories I burn doing bench press. Screw the bench press. I'm going to go run, you know, even yeah. though I hate running. Right. You know, so they end up in this cycle of I hate food, I hate exercise, and that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Cass Forsyth is good at teaching people this, but she's like, it's the calories you're burning outside of the gym, too. Right. I mean, even if you spend two and a half hours in the gym, that's 10 percent of your training day. Ninety percent of your training day is not in the gym. And if you're very sore, your metabolic rate is going to be about a good 10 percent faster. I've measured it myself. If um, you carry more muscle mass, something like six to 13 extra calories that you're going to burn per added pound of muscle mass. So let's say you add 10 pounds of muscle mass. That's 60 to about 130 extra calories a day. Uh, That's based on research from Robert Wolf's lab, actually. That's not some of the nonsense you see online. But still, that's like a light cardio session just because you're jacked. It's beautiful. So, yeah, yeah, people don't think about the, you know, um, changes in your resting metabolic rate because of the muscle mass and hormonal changes and that kind of thing or soreness because that's what's going to add up it's not just the hour and a half you spend trying to walk off that bagel i don't know yeah and for even for people who exercise a fair amount exercise is still the third for caloric training you know like you said it's resting you know energy expanded your basal metabolic rate is number one and then usually neat, so non-exercise and activity thermogenesis. So how much you move around in other activities, like you were saying, outside of the gym, even if you exercise a lot, that's normally still burning more calories than exercise itself. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Unless you're a sloth and don't move. Right, right. <laughs> uh, let me offer this to you guys. Uh, Mike, this one might be best for you, but Phil, I know you have some thoughts on this too, but... This is a little bit older question, but I just wanted to address it. I'll withhold the name because I didn't ask specifically if we could mention this on the air. But I'm going to tell you, uh, just listeners in general, if you send us a question in email, more or less assume that we may use it on air. We'll use your first name maybe, uh, or if you, unless you, of course, ask us to withhold it. But uh, we won't use first and last names usually. So, But this one says uh, – this is through Facebook. Hey, Lonnie, is there a supplement or strategy – that you're aware of that switches off type two diabetes. Now that's a tall order, but uh, I believe uh, I was keeping it away. It was a family trait for years with low carb eating and heavy resistance training, but I slacked off for a few months and now losing weight without doing anything to initiate it. Any info you could offer would be appreciated. Um, I'm going to preface this one by saying. Go see your your doctor. I mean, unexplained weight loss is not cool. Uh, If you are thirsty a lot and you're peeing a lot, and I am not a physician, right? But polydipsia, polyuria, and unexplained weight loss, those suggest that the diabetes may be bad enough that even though you're eating, uh, your tissues are sort of starving in the midst of plenty. So you got to get a blood sugar check uh, and some of that that sort of thing. I don't know, Mike, what do you think about supplements? There's lots of botanicals that are supposed to help with blood sugar control, but most of them get exaggerated. Yeah, I haven't seen anything that I'm overly impressed with, to be honest. Like you said, Lonnie, there's – you see various things pop up here and there, and a lot of it's done in mice, which is a good start. But most of those things, if they're, you know, grass safe or, you know, generally regarded as safe, can be tested in humans right away. Um 
Yeah, I don't. I haven't looked for yeah any supplements that are that useful. Um, if you're extremely deficient in you know any nutrient or micronutrient, you know high quality multivitamin probably a good start. Um, there's been data in the past on chromium and a bunch of other stuff, but I don't know. Some people report that alpha lipoic acid may be helpful. Right. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of data. I'm overly impressed with on that. Um, I've worked with a couple of people who are type two diabetic. Obviously, they work through their physician. But the biggest thing I did with them is just, you know, get a glucometer. You know, start measuring your fasting glucose at least each morning. Um, which anyone can buy one. I mean, I've measured mine off and on for multiple days in a row um, just to see and have a record of where you're at because if that starts creeping up, you know, you can bring it to the doc and say, hey, you know, my fasting glucose is, you know, was 90 and now it's, you know, 115 or, you know, whatever it is. Um, And that also gives you an indicator of what you're doing if it's actually making a difference or not. Um, They can do other measures like a HbA1c, which is an average about of three months of your glucose numbers, but that's not a number you're going to be able to get all that often. So I think having the daily numbers is good. Um, you can even start doing it after a set number of meals. Um, I've even tried my own sort of poor man's oral glucose tolerance test where you just get 80 grams of dextrose and take it before slam that and take measurements for about every 20 minutes for, you know, about two hours. Yeah. yeah. You know, not the best, but you know, something you can do at home. Um, last thing on that too, I found that increasing just their movement. So if they have a Fitbit or I have a basis watch tracking the number of steps, so getting them to just get up and move around more. Um, there's a study that I worked on at the university of Minnesota that I don't think still has been published yet. Um, but some of the data subgroup of it, they actually had the implantable glucose monitor. And so it's, you know, taken super high frequency measurements because it's implantable in the group. They had one group at a standard desk and then one group at a standing desk. And they found that the group in the standing desk actually had a little bit better glucose use. And when they measured the amount of movement they did, the standing desk group actually moved around more. So that's some interesting data on that. Um, In terms of training, I look at adding more concentric-only work on off days. Um, So like maybe even light car pushes, like lots of sled work, maybe even some sledgehammer work. Um, Those things just to get a lot of muscle mass movement, but it's not going to really make you incredibly sore. It's not going to interfere with your um, other heavy training. seems to help too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, uh, I'll just add, I mean, the people that I've helped – I've helped three or four now that were type two diabetics get off all their medications. Ninety percent of it was diet. Yeah, <laughs> it really was. I mean, it's just eating the right stuff. And then, of course, I mean, the training goes in with it. But I mean, I'm even a strength coach. That's what I do, and I'm the first to admit that most of it's diet. You know, I mean, if you're eating crap, you could train all you want. If you're loading yourself up with candy bars and crap like that, you're not going to change anything. Yeah. So yeah, um, it's just yeah. getting them to eat the right thing more vegetables and meats and fats and you know less crap yeah less refined carbs and shit like yeah you know just a caveat actually two points i thought about when when mike was talking one is uh, a lot of those blood glucose meters i mean you can get those things for like 30 bucks they're not necessarily that expensive but they get you on the test strips so (laughs) you know it's like buying a printer you know they give you the printer for cheap and they screw you on the ink it's that kind of thing but having said that those things are they're not uber accurate in a healthy person's blood glucose range right so i've i've 
looked at these repeatedly before and I've had students use them and you know, so if your blood, if it's plus or minus like 10 milligrams per deciliter, 10 units up or down, uh, you could pretty much ignore that because, I mean, you could take a, a finger prick like three times in a row and get numbers that fluctuate five or eight, maybe 10 units. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's and, what I saw too. Yeah, and you know, but that's fine. If you're if you're a diabetic and your blood sugars are 250 or f- 400, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty accurate. But if you're, you know, futzing around with blood sugars in the 70 to 90 range, just remember those are not perfect. You know, like you said, Mike, I like how you said poor man's glucose tolerance test, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, what I've done in the past is instead of just straight dextrose, because they'll even do this in a hospital sometimes, is just give uh, four pieces of white bread and then 60 minutes later take your blood sugar and see where it's at. It really should not be over about 140 to 160 milligrams per deciliter. If you're up around 200 um you know, it's a it's a suggestion. It's not an alarm, but it's a suggestion. Go go talk to your doctor because your blood sugar should not be spiking that high. Be careful though that you're not sore. If you're rocked with soreness from head to toe, your blood sugars might run a little higher uh, because the sore muscles just don't take up uh, blood sugar very well. That's why Mike, of course, was mentioning concentric you know exercise and not too much negatives and that kind of stuff. And lastly, the, there's um, I'm almost sure. Uh, Mike, you're more gadgety than I am, but I'm almost sure they have the hemoglobin A1C meters now that you can buy in like Walgreens or CVS or different, different grocery stores. Um, and it's neat because of course it's an average of the last few weeks, but I agree with you though. I would, I would just do the poor man's approach and get a reasonably cheap glucometer and, you know, challenge yourself and see what happens. Cause you're, I mean, in all likelihood, four pieces of white bread, you're, I'm talking about maybe 50 or 60 grams of fast acting carbs. Uh, even if you are diabetic, one meal like that's not going to kill you. I mean, I can tell you, my wife sees a lot of people uh, in her practice, um, mental health practice, but they're diabetics and they're sitting in the lobby. They're, they're slamming Pepsis and eating cheese curls. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so having a few pieces of plain white bread, you know, usually not a problem. I'm not, telling anybody to go do it necessarily but um anyway that that should be able to help with that you're right the minerals uh chromium vanadium um there's a whole list and i I used to get excited about them even aspirin has uh hypoglycemic effects it'll help with blood sugar disposal a little bit but if you if you do get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes the doctor puts you on something like metformin some bodybuilders abuse metformin because it helps with glucose disposal and whatnot. And if you're insulin resistant, that stuff is like magic for body comp. I've seen it clinically uh, more than once. So we've rambled on enough about this particular question, but I, I've seen some very cool uh, fat loss effects when people correct their blood blood glucose uh, and their hyperinsulinemia by taking some metformin, the drug, of course. So. Yeah. And last thing I would add too, I, I agree with Phil on the nutrition part is huge and one thing I've noticed, too, is sleep and stress levels. So obviously, I'm a big fan of measuring stress by HRV or however you want to measure stress. And I noticed for myself that if my sleep debt got pretty high, my blood glucose would really creep up. Oh, good point. Um, so yeah. One person I worked with, we just did a bunch of work on her sleep. And, you know, it definitely did come down over time. You know, there's studies from uh, Illinois showing that uh, college people who have normal, you know, glucose disposal, everything is fine. You sleep deprive them for, I think it was only two weeks, and they're like borderline diabetic. Um, and granted, oh, that wow. corrected once they went back again. Um, but sleep is a huge factor too. It's a good one. Good point. 
All right. Uh, we're going to go to break. When we come back, let me just drop a topic on you guys. You're professionals. You guys can roll with this. Uh, I'd like to talk about basic exercise programming, uh, real basic stuff uh, across the muscle sport. So bodybuilding, powerlifting, or sports-specific like athletic stuff with a focus on periodization. We've touched on this before, but I think it's good to get an idea of how academics and professionals sort of look at periodization. So I'm going to throw out at least three different kinds of periodization models. Uh, I'm not going to talk about commercial ones. If you want me to be taught, you know, to jump right into a commercial exercise program, 531 or starting strength, that's not what this is about. This is the uh, framework that you can use when you do read books like that to kind of assess what kind of periodized model you're actually on. So some questions on periodization when we get back. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook – uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it.
All right, everybody, we are back from the break, and we are going to talk about geez, all, all that is periodization and how to kind of identify what kind of, uh, I don't know, when you're looking at a program, what what is the basis of it? So Yeah. That's yeah. kind of where we're at. Well, let's start with one of the uh, more basic. Uh, I would argue, I think, when most people talk about periodization, they probably are referring to uh, classical linear periodization. Mm-hmm. Um in my mind, in my sort of academic or more bodybuilder mind, I look at that almost like a powerlifting approach, you know, where you, you the weights are a little bit lighter. Maybe you're doing like 75% loads and, or something like that. You're trying to build some mass or build a, a mass size base. I don't know. And then you increase the intensity over time while you start cutting back on sets or reps, maybe to peak for a meet. But I know it can't be that simple. So, what are your thoughts, Phil, about linear? Like it? Do you modify it? No, I like it. I mean, I, the thing is, is, I could go on this for hours. But <laughs> there's great things about it. You know, there's great things about linear periodization. Um, the good things about it is you you go in and you know what you're going to do, and you're consistently adding a little more, um, either volume or intensity, as the the uh, the days go on. I think it works great with, with your newer athletes. It usually works almost flawlessly um, because they are getting they're getting stronger almost by the day. Mm-hmm. So it, it works to add five pounds next week or, yeah, or yeah. Add, add more weight and drop the reps a little bit. You know, it, it almost works flawlessly. The, the problem comes in with me is with more advanced athletes. Um, and with linear periodization, you're usually forecasting out at least several months, if not years. Um, so the problem comes in down the road is like how am I how do I know that this athlete's going to have a good day on January fifteenth of two thousand seventeen? <laughs> right, exactly. You know? Right. Yes, that's yep. the problem. Yep. With it. Yep. Um, so and that's where I make adjustments in my own programming for that. But um, uh, you know, Phil, I I like the big picture approach of that. If you're like you know <laughs> my macro cycle is a year or like. You know, there's a local guy getting ready for the Olympic Games uh, in Olympic lifting. So his macro cycles four years, and I yes. love that. You know, this is where I want to be in my career four years from now. But to me, it's almost, and I, I am not a coach, but it seems to me it's a rookie coaching mistake to say, no, we are in this meso cycle. You know, midway through our big macro cycle, this is what you have to lift. I don't care how you feel or what yeah. it's been like the last two months. You know what I mean? And to me, that's a rookie mistake. Like, they want to follow the letter of the law and not the spirit yes. of the law, right? And that, that's the problem with it. You need outs. You need, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what I do in my programming is I have, I have several options. We have already, I have written in options for those good days and bad days. You know, and you, you need to define that, in my opinion, before you get started because they're going to happen. You know, especially when a lifter starts reaching that intermediate or advanced stage. Um, like I said, with beginners, yeah, it usually works flawlessly. You know, somebody that comes into the gym, hell, a lot of times you can add 10 pounds a week. Right. No, right. That's a good point. So, um, yeah, but, um, you know, that's, um, I've always thought it was more of an advanced, like you could tell an experienced coach sometimes when he or she can, they'll do a little assessment at the beginning. I, I was, I remember talking to Keith Scheiman about this years ago on the podcast. He's a strength coach and, and massotherapist. Up in Wisconsin, actually. Um, I think he's still up there, uh, Keith, if you're listening. But um, 
he would talk about doing assessments like in exercise science classes at the university. We teach people to do some basic screening, make sure it's safe. Then we do some baseline testing, you know, classic like exercise testing kinds of things, flexibility or muscle strength or cardiovascular endurance. So then we could track progress. But it's a more advanced idea. It, it, again, when you're trying to employ periodization, do some type of quick test at the beginning of a workout and see if the athlete is is okay to do that heavy day or are you going to wait spin your wheels they're pushing against loads that shouldn't be that heavy Mm -hmm. and they're just not feeling it you know so a little bit of a quick assessment the same day honestly mike that sounds like the kind of stuff that you'd be into i I don't want to pigeonhole you but uh, what do you think about that Uh, um in terms of the assessment part each day i think that's good um i've played around more with velocity based training now using the push device and you kind of have to baseline yourself on what velocity is, you know, good for you on a on a good day. And there's some, you know, rough ranges to, to be in, but I found that it tends to be more individual. Um, and then if you're off quite a bit of that velocity, then you know, just make a change, you know, because if you're not going to do significantly better than what you did the previous session, you could argue you're getting worse unless you're you know purposely trying to, to overreach or something yeah, like that. Yep. Uh, and I think what you guys are saying is true. And the biggest mistake I made years ago is that, you know, I would grab this program and, you know, I had some very well meaning coaches that I paid a lot of write a program. And, you know, I would just, you know, follow it because I'm like, oh, I got to do this. I hundreds of dollars. This, this has to be the program. And, oh, I just pounded myself in the ground yeah. and got injured. And it was my own fault, you know, because I had all the signals from my body that wasn't working. I was missing lifts, um, but I thought, well, this has got to be the right program. And I, I missed the intent or the reason or the principles of, you know, why they wrote it. Right. So I think if people go back to the, the principles of, you know, why it's written, and if they kind of follow those, they'll be okay. Um, but a lot of people either do one extreme or the other. They try one program for a week and go, ah, screw this, it's not working. Or they do the same program for... I had a client come in once, new client years ago, and gives me the program. And I said, oh, how's it going? He's like, oh, I heard everywhere. haven't made progress in years. And I said, oh, well, how long have you been doing this program? And he pulls out this like, tattered piece of paper from his pocket. <laughs> and he goes, seven years. Yeah. Holy and I'm like, seven years? Oh, man. Like, You've been doing the same eight-week program for seven years. And he's like, yeah, I've rewrote it multiple times on the same piece of paper. On one hand, I'm thinking from a mental fortitude standpoint, that's kind of impressive. It is kind of impressive. From a, a progress standpoint, I'm like, wow. I said, why? He's like, well, I worked with the trainer years ago, and he, he gave it to me and said, this is the last program you'll ever need. So I didn't think I needed it. <laughs> oh, boy. Else. Oh, good Lord. Like, oh, my God. That's a, you know what? That is a great uh, example of why we periodize, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, bodybuilders, I think, and I'm pigeonholing them, um, but they are more guilty of that, I think. Uh, there's a progressive nature of powerlifting, you know, because you're always looking for greater, you know, numbers. Uh, but I, I don't know if you agree with that, Phil, but I think bodybuilders are more guilty of that. They'll spin their wheels with a program just – well, yeah, you'll see the year guy after that year. always comes in and does the same set for like seven years. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, no, but I mean the one good thing about just basic periodization that I do like is also its downfall is that it gives you something written down like I need to do this today. 
because there are days where I have clients that are just they're having kind of a, they're not mentally all there that day. And it's like, well, dude, you need to pick it up because you need to hit this today. You know, if there's nothing actually physically wrong with them, you know, they're not beat yeah. up. They're just kind of in a funk that day. It's like, well, pull your head out of your butt, dude. We need to hit four or five to ten. <laughs> so you better man up, you know. No, and you know and what? That's one good thing about it. It yes. gives them – they're, they're able to look that days in advance, and they're like, man, I got I to gotta do this tonight. Yeah, it gives them you a know? target. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and that's the good thing about, about periodization. It gives you that – it gives you an edge. you got to mentally get yourself ready. Kind of a right? template, yeah. Yes. You know, so. it is the flip side, and I think that's why a little assessment might be good, like what you're saying, Mike, with uh, you know some little uh, gadget or device, and look at uh, how fast you're moving the bar, or you know, vertical leap. I don't know some kind of uh, little test because you're right. I mean, think about this in like collegiate athletics. If you don't have a template, and you're too individual, and you're too sensitive to people not being yeah. ready for the heavy lift, you're gonna have chaos. Yes. You know, so. And I think it comes down to you need rules. The the problem people have is they don't know what to do when that that bad day happens. Yep. So prior to that, you need to already have a plan set in place. If if stuff's going wrong, I revert to this. Yeah, <laughs> is what that's you need. Great set in advice. Place. Yeah, and that's what I do. You know, I have this already set in place for good days and bad days. We have we have systems like, oh man, he's killing it today, so we're going to do this instead. Man, you're not looking great, so we're going to do this. So, yeah. but most days are those run of the mill days, you know, where you're just going to do what's programmed. You know, right. So. You know, I, not that I'm competitive now, but like if my joints are really aching, I can usually find that I can put like 30 or 50% loads on and get some speed work done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. My muscles are wet, willing, my joints are not. Well, there you go. Yeah. So there's maybe a, an example of a fallback plan. That's not as elaborate as what you do, Phil, but you know, I'm. You know, I, I workouts are more of a meditation for me now than mm-hmm. than a, a competitive aspiration, arguably. Yeah. But um, yeah, uh, let me go to the next one here quick uh, because you're right. We could talk about these all day. Uh, reverse linear periodization. Uh, when I first heard about this, I was like, "That's that doesn't sound very fun." You know, linear seems fun. You add weight every day, and you get stronger and stronger, and you yeah. peak. Um, Reverse linear, of course, would be you're starting more heavy. So maybe after a little uh, break, after your last regular linear linear periodization cycle, you can the next mesocycle. Let's say for the next four months, uh, I'm gonna actually lighten the load over time and add volume. And when I first learned to love this was, I guess it was would have been like 2011, 2012. Uh, after I had done my last round of competing, I needed a new goal, and uh, I wanted to do five sets of five with 365 in the squat. And that's not going to impress a lot of powerlifters, but and I'm you know I'm not a huge dude, so that is a brutal amount of total volume, you know, sets times reps times weight for me. And so I started um, with lower. I might have I think I was doing like three or four. I think I was doing three sets of three you know, with 365. And then I do three sets of threes and fours. And then I do four sets of threes and fours. And then I, you know, slowly over time, I added, uh, you know, first a couple of reps and then eventually another set. And then I actually learned it's more fun to add sets instead of more reps. You know, like I'd rather break it across five or six sets um, than fewer sets with more reps, if that makes any sense, just because I, I'm, I'm averse to... Um, 
high reps in in if I know I've got four or five more sets to go. I don't know. But anyway, the point being was I slowly, by adding a few more reps each set, uh, I built that capacity. And to me, that was like a bucket list thing. I wanted to be able to do that. And ultimately, I did. And I admit, I couldn't maintain it for very long. But that was... Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, but you kept the weight at 365. You didn't lower the the intensity. You didn't lower the weight. Well, actually, yeah, I probably did because uh, if you reassess your one rep max somewhere mid-session, right, I didn't... I didn't adjust for that. So I was getting stronger. So in a sense, the percent of my one rep max was going down, right? Yeah. So it's a freaky idea that the weight on the bar stays the same, yeah. but you're actually lowering the intensity across those four months, yes. you know. But uh, And you know what? And just another a quick example of this, um, the guy that that handles this the best, I think, uh, and I still marvel at this because he texted me the other day. He just did this again, but – uh, Rob, right, who's really not on the show so much anymore, but Rob will Rob will do 10 sets of 10 with 315. Oh, my oh, God. God. I would be crippled forever. Now, he's built like a refrigerator. You know, he's as deep <laughs> as he is wide and, and tall. But um, that it, that's what we're talking about. Like, to me, that's that kind of – is 315 going to impress a power lifter? No. No, it's not. But you do 10 sets of 10 with it. And it's it's hard to argue that that type of capacity isn't impressive, and that's where I think reverse linear periodization can lead you, right? As you're you're adding capacity like that. But so my, my question for you, Phil, is uh, what would be a good sport, or what kind of athletes do you work with that you might do something like that, or do you just not do that? I don't do it a lot, but I mean, the per- people I can see doing that with would be. Uh, I guess I inadvertently do it some um, for my more strength endurance based athletes. So I deal with people that like uh, compete in CrossFit games. Right. CrossFit. Yeah. That's what so, I think of. A big portion of our beginning year, like their season uh, starts with the open. So early on, if I got somebody that wants to do well in the open, like sometime like now, we're going to be getting them maximally strong. And then as we get closer to competition, we're lowering our loads and we're getting better at the more rep-based stuff. Mm-hmm. So that would, be an, that would be an athlete population that I'd do something like that with. Yeah. Um, our number one goal usually with them is because most of them, 99% of people that are interested in CrossFit aren't strong enough to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? No, that's true, yeah. It is. They yeah, all yeah. think it's about the reps, but when you look at the top people, they're freaking strong. Very strong. So it's like you need to get much, much stronger if you want to compete with them. Um, so and and ninety percent they they come in and they're like great at doing body weight for ten million reps. The minute I give them sixty five pounds, it all goes to shit. You know? So right, um, we need to make them much stronger. So that's what we concentrate on for our first, depending on the athlete, four months, six months, whatever. And then then we start backing things off and getting them better at a little, little lighter weight and uh, more reps. So yeah, and you know one one thing this lends itself to, I think, is skill acquisition maybe too mm-hmm. you know when the weights are coming down a little maybe you can work on more sport specific skills as part of the yeah. of the program you know yeah. um now mike let's just because out of time first of all any thoughts on reverse linear before i ask you about undulating yeah so in general i'm kind of a fan of it um i'm a big fan of leaving the weights generally fixed for a cycle you know three four five six weeks and then just accumulating volume and making sure the quality of work stays as high as possible 
So if you look at a, a typical program I'd write, it'd say, okay, I want you in the, say, three to five rep range, so it's kind of heavy. And we may just linearly increase volume until you kind of feel like you can't handle it anymore. <clears throat> so two sets, three sets, four sets, five sets, six sets. And then I have a pretty good idea of you know, how much volume they can handle overall. And you're correct that over time, the weight may stay the same, but you're still applying the overload via volume. So mm-hmm. similar idea. Yeah. yeah. Hey, you just said something that really jogged my um, a question for both of you guys before we get to undulating periodization. But um, what? how do you decide the length of a mesocycle, right? Because, I mean, these can be anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks, you know, 16 weeks. Uh, I've always kind of looked at the idea, like, if I have somebody with less recovery ability, maybe they're more ectomorphic and thin in nature, maybe they better do more like a six, eight, m- maybe 10-week mesocycle. I, I, it depends on the goal, of course. But, Phil, do you have any rule of thumb for that, like number of weeks? Yeah, most of my people are – the majority are, I would call them intermediate athletes, are usually on a 12-week cycle. 12, so we'll peak, yeah. We'll peak quarterly. Um now my new people are much shorter than that because I know they're going to progress faster. So we might do tests monthly um, because I need to know where they're at. And, you know, they can easily in a month gain a, a large percentage. So and then hey, hang on. Now. The, so you will rewrite their program then as early as much as monthly. Yes. OK. Well, yeah. or we might do test days. And that when I say test days, especially for new people, it may not be um, – a single max effort, but we're going to have some kind of test. Like, okay, we're going to see where your max five's at, you know, okay. <laughs> something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So Rep I test. can find out where where we're at now because they've they've markedly improved over just a few weeks. So it gives me an idea where we're at because I do love working off percentages of some. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and then my my longer term people. I mean, I've got people that okay, we're peaking out for freaking nationals next year. <laughs> right. So, yeah. And in the midst of that, we will have test days, you know, but our, our greater goal is is still that that year from now. So, do you uh, do you do a What kind of deload? Do you do a couple of days? Do you how do you do a deload? My deloads are generally based individually off the user. So it's I, I don't like usually plan them in. I will plan them in sometimes for people at a distance because I'm not there with them. Um, generally, my deloads are on the fly when they're needed. Um, when I see, you know, like I was talking about my rules based, the, the rules I have in place. If we have one bad day, that happens. We start tack stacking two or three days together that are yeah. bad. Now we got to, we need to deload. So okay. Okay, yeah. um, I don't believe in uh, just planned deloads really because, I mean, people are so individual. I've got people that can push it hard for six months. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And they'll keep kicking ass. Mm-hmm. So why am I going to have them slow down when the iron's still hot? Okay. You know, um, and usually it'll show itself. I mean, and if I start seeing a a decline over two, three sessions, okay, you need to take a break, you know? Yeah. So we'll either adjust stuff down or I'll just literally tell them to get the hell out of the gym and go rest. So, okay. Yeah. I agree with the 12 week as sort of a, the standard template probably. Mm -hmm. Mike, what do you, what do you like? Again, people differ, their goals differ, but do you, how do you, I'm especially curious about the in between cycles you know what i mean with like the number of weeks and then the deload in between cycles you know 
Yeah, so if I look at what I do with most people, it's actually pretty short. It's usually four to six weeks is about how long they'll run on average. Okay. But their next program may have similar exercises, just slight variations, and it may swap out a few things. And so they'll go four to six weeks. And like Phil said, I'll look at their heart rate variability. If that starts, the trending really starts to go down. They don't feel good. Performance is kind of dropping. Um, Then I'll just have them do a taper. So the tapers that I have them do, again, I look at heart rate variability. I want that to, in general, come back and recover. So I know that the accumulated fatigue that they built up is uh, back to normal again. Uh, For some people, like I had a guy who uh, qualified for raw nationals, his taper was close to, for his last meet, like nine to ten days. But he had a lot of accumulated fatigue. He would run, you know, much longer cycles with not too much of a taper in between either. Okay. Um, But most people... Four to six weeks, um, their program won't change a whole lot. Um, if they're relatively new, I'll probably have them test. So once the accumulated fatigue has been passed, I'll usually have them do, you know, one rep max test or maybe a three rep max test on their, you know, top one, two, or three lifts, um, and then change it again. Usually, most of their stuff is more limited to by their lifestyle, um, but a lot of them don't have as much control over their lifestyle. So I'm kind of constantly changing and tweaking the program to make sure that it fits within their lifestyle context because that's right, usually right. the one variable that's the most ability to change so that's kind of a lot more work on on my end but it's better than just you know put pounding them into the ground i like how you monitor you know you're so scientific in the way you, you do that yeah. kind of stuff like you know <laughs> like the the bar velocities the meter meters per second have just dropped 10 percent maybe yeah, we're approaching the end right away yeah. That's the first thing that goes. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, uh, just maybe a practical tip for listeners, but one of the things I do is my motivation to train, just like on a yep. one to seven scale. And if I'm sixes and sevens, and I notice for the last two weeks, I'm repeatedly doing twos and threes, like I just can't get into it, you know, and, and, and I look at my program and I'm like, oh, I'm in week eight. Maybe I better wind this down, you know, and kind of either retest or take a little deload and then you know what I mean? And then get back at it because I'm pushing it too far. Uh, in my experience, at least with me personally, like I can't do like the, the 12 week template, you know, like I know some guys, they work construction all day. Then they go lift their ass off in the evening and then they go drinking all night. I can't do that. You know, (laughs) I'm not that robust. (laughs) Yeah. And so my mesocycles are usually a little shorter, but Mm. since we're almost out of time, let me toss this out to you guys. Uh, so, what about undulating, you know, so up and down? And so listeners, if you're not familiar, I, at least I'm referring to something like heavy day, medium day, light day, and then, you know, <clears throat> literally within the same microcycle, like in the same week or maybe across two weeks, you're doing heavy, medium, and light work. And I, what I really like about this is on heavy days, you're sort of sparing glycogen, you know, because you may only do a dozen reps in the gym. I mean, if you ever think about that, um, it's because the weights, if you're in a 90 plus percent range, you're just not going to be doing scores and scores of reps. Uh, So you kind of spare glycogen. But then on the lighter days, when you are kind of burning through your muscle carbohydrate stores and that kind of stuff, you're sparing your joints. So I like that you're sort of going back and forth a little bit. Uh, And that's only one example of why it could be good, but... um, Phil, do you ever do that kind of stuff, or are you more a linear guy, or uh... with myself? Well, with yeah. How about you? 
jeez, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with me is I'm all over the place. So I have to have like 17 back out plans in place, depending on what's going on that day. So, um, okay. No, I generally, though, like sticking with something that's. I like the. I like. I like sticking with a plan that's, that's you know, three months, four months long. And more linear. And, you know, like I that. have a plan going on and this is it. And then I have my built in, you know, what I call buy ups and things like that. Right, that's what yeah. gives me my motivation is like. Um, I, I build in a system to where if I'm killing it this day, I, I've earned the right to extra work, you know, is, uh-huh. is what I do. And that gives me my motivation. Like I need to go in here. I not only need to do this, what's on the paper. I need to kill it. Cause that gives me the chance to go up. So, um, so your plan, well your plan B or your buy up days, that sort of makes your linear model a little bit undulating then doesn't yes, it? Because, it does. yeah. cause you're like, so. it's a scheduled heavy day, yep. but being completely honest with yourself, that's not going to happen. So yep. you might do a higher rep kind of thing, just throw it in. Yeah, or I might just do speed work that day. Speed or work, like you right? Were talking about right. You know, yep. so I have I always have a plan B and a, a plan Z and a plan <laughs> depending on what's going on <laughs> that day. Because I have I had to, and basically I started using this on other people because I have so many. I mean, everybody knows me. I've basically I've been injured since the age of seven. So day to day, I'm all over the place. So I have to have those plans in place, or I just get frustrated. You know, yeah. just walk out and not do anything. And oh, right. Usually, it's better to do something. I can do something constructive, even if it's freaking mobility work. You know, I can get something done. Right. So no, that's good. Point. Um, I have to have all those plans in place. Um, yeah. Mentally, at least beforehand, so I know. Okay, that's not going to happen. We're doing this. If not, then you just stand around and pout and wonder. Well, what should I do? Well, I already have that in place. So makes sense. Um. But yeah, I'll do. A, I mean, I do. She's undulating periodization. It depends on the athlete. I'm not stuck to any one style of training. I try to find out what fits my athletes best. I have athletes that do great on more of a conjugate style periodization and things like that. Right. So, I mean, right. that's that's one reason I traveled the, all around the globe so long is to learn all these different systems and then put them in place. I just don't believe in that. Like that, Mike was talking about the guy that did the same plan for eight years. I've never found. This is the last plan you'll need. Yeah. You know, I've never found that. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I have to be able to adjust my planning to the individual. It's a good so. point. It's a good point that, and a reminder that what we started this conversation with, remember, we're talking about three basic types that are archetypes, you know, that it's a framework that you can look at different programs and kind of get a feel for where you might lie on this uh, maybe more academic outlook of this stuff. But Mike, what about you? Undulating heavy days and light days. Is that exciting to you? Do you not like that? Yeah, in general, I'm a big fan of undulating. Um, so how I would break it down for most people. And again, like Phil said, it all depends on the, the person and their goals and what they respond to is in general, I'll have, you know, one day, like maybe Monday is their strength day, you know, so they'll do a compound lift and maybe even another compound lift, you know, three to five rep range or maybe even singles or doubles or triples. Um, and then the next day, maybe Tuesday is what I call a dude bra bodybuilding day. You know, they just go in and do lower body hypertrophy, you know, single joint exercise. You make that sound negative. <laughs> yeah. Those are fun days. Then, I like those days. Yeah. And most guys like them. I yeah. Mean, I've added more to that to my training recently and it doesn't beat me up as much. I feel better. I can do more volume. Um, and then third, I may even have an aerobic day. A lot of the people I work with are pretty high stress, so I can't push them super hard all the time. Most of them need some aerobic work, but I don't want to do their aerobic work right after their strength work because that confuses your body. This yeah. is the way that just came out on that actually too. Oh. So I try to pick a, mm-hmm. a day 
and say, what is the, what is the goal? What is the adaptation I want from that person on that day? And try to stay as much as I can within those parameters. Again, there's always exceptions to these quote-unquote rules. Um, and if their HRV is tanking or they're becoming very stressed, their drop-down is just usually an aerobic day. Or their first drop-down may be a bodybuilding day. So if they come in and they're you know supposed to do a strength day and they're, it's not there, the velocity is not there, it's just not going well, then they'll just drop down and do some you know bodybuilding stuff that day. Yeah, um, some straight so sets or supersets. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, speaking of this, and I, again, we're we're up mostly out of time, but I know John Mike, he's got a huge peeve against the whole you know muscle confusion principle you know that oh, yeah. you see circulate in commercial kinds of settings yeah. we might do a show on that right because i know what you're saying about when you're trying to stack cardio at the end of a strength day or uh, this whole idea. idea of confuse the muscles and yeah you, you kind of end up dividing your resources it's like i remember something phil says that i say in class now which is the man who chases two rabbits doesn't eat you know yeah. uh, because you can't have both you, you can't be going for you know two disparate things, and your adaptations are going to suffer. I think when you add too much cardio or too much volume while you're trying to build strength and stuff. So, anyway, all right, fellas, uh, we're about pretty much out of time. So, good stuff. Yeah, it was good. Good discussion. All right, uh, I guess we'll see everybody next week then. See ya. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. 
The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.